Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah, from a very blizzardy South Dakota. Yeah, I just came back from a very blizzardy South Dakota, except it wasn't very blizzardy when I was down there. Yeah, they've put us under blizzard watch from uh, earlier today right through to Thursday. Well, I tell you what, I am disappointed about blizzards, but I am excited because I'm not going to be here for the blizzards come two weeks from, well, not two weeks from today exactly, but in about two weeks, I'll be headed to Southern California to attend Scale. Joining me is Mr. Elon from Scale. Welcome in, sir. Hey, Noah. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to be here. So this is really exciting, right? Scale is finally back to, uh, it, it is, is back. We're kind of post-pandemic and I, you know, there was last year I wasn't quite able to make it out, but this year I'm, I'm going to be there and Ask Noah Show is going to be there. We're going to have a presence and it's going to be a fun time. Tell me what's coming up at Scale this year. So, sure. I guess first, for those that don't know about Scale, we're um, a community-run Linux and open source conference uh, that's been running in the Southern California area for about uh, just a little over 20 years. We This is our 20th year running the show. We had to skip one year for the pandemic, but um, but ever <laughs> we've, we've been we, we've been running it ever since um, 2002, I think. Um, and so we put together, it's a four day event covering everything from everything Linux and open source, uh, as well as on, on some of the fringes. So we have like the Kubernetes communities running, uh, uh, an event, you know, the day before scale, we've got DevOps day LA, we have keynotes by folks like Ken Thompson, uh, who created Go and Unix, uh, and, and a whole lot more. And so, um, you know, as you said, this is our, you know, our first real year back from the pandemic, we had, a we had a slightly smaller scale event um, back in back in July, um, you know, that impacted a little bit by the pandemic. But we're we're hoping to be back at our at our, at our normal home and our normal size uh, in just uh, what seventeen days here, uh, March 9th through the twelfth at the Pasadena Convention Center. And so um, we hope, hope hopefully hopefully we'll get. I'm looking forward to seeing you know as always, but uh, you know, looking forward to seeing meet, meeting some of the listeners from your community as well. Yeah, yeah, they'll be out there, and it's it's going to be a blast. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, your keynote. Is it is it Aran Gupta, the Vice President and General Manager of Open Ecosystems Initiative at Intel, uh, open source advocate, stra- uh, strategist, and practitioner for nearly 20 years, and yep. he's doing your keynote. That's exciting. Yeah, so Arun's one of our three keynotes. Um, we also have uh, – he, he's going to be speaking – uh, about some of the lessons he's learned in building uh, open source communities, and Arun's been around, uh, you know, like you said, for about as long as scale in the open source world, if not if not longer. Uh, he started his career at Sun, helping build out the Java community, um, and has more recently, you know, more recently been at Intel and, um, and 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 at the CNCF. And so we're excited to learn from him. Um, the other keynote speaker that we have is Ken Thompson. And so for those of you that uh, don't know Ken. He's built everything that we've uh, almost everything that we all depend on every day in, in our, our day to day lives. Somehow it touches back on Ken Thompson's work. He created uh, Unix back when he was at Bell Labs. He created UTF-8. Uh, he was part of the team that built Plan 9 at Bell Labs, and most recently he built uh, he helped uh, co-create the Go language at Google. Uh, and so we're we're super excited to have him out because he's he's just one of those folks that's been foundational to our to our industry and to our space. Um, and then the last keynote we have is, is a woman named Kitty Young, who does some really interesting work with um, physics and art that she'll be sharing a little bit more about how to, a, 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 about as part of her keynote as well. One of probably my favorite thing about Scale is it ha- it's a very large event, but it has a, a small community feel. And a big yeah. part of that is some of these co-located events. So can you talk a little bit about some of the things like Capture the Flag for those that are interested in security or Open Source Career Day for those yeah. that are maybe looking for a career? Yeah. So uh, scale, you know, initially we started off as a, a really small 
uh, you know, 200 person event, which was just a way to get all the local Linux users groups together. Uh, LA, if you don't know the area is very dispersed. And so getting from one point of the city to the another can take you, you know, I don't know, can take you hours. And that's before you throw in traffic, um, which is, which LA is well, well known for. So we, 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 we worked, but over the years, we've sort of worked to create uh, a home for other events that want to run activities uh, and, and, and get folks together since we, you know, we have the venue, we have, we've done all the work. Uh, you know, happy to ha- happy to have a big tent there, and so we have groups like uh, you know you mentioned capture the flag, which is um, we have a a bunch of the local universities have gotten together, uh, and their 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 student clubs have gotten together and are running uh, a, a running capture the flag contests throughout scale uh, for those that want to get hands on and, and do do work in security. Um, the Kubernetes community and, and the CNCF are running um, an event called Kubernetes Community Day. Uh, the, the day is leading up to scale, and that's going to be about all things, you know, cloud native. So Kubernetes containers, service meshes, and and and, and all that fun, all, all, all that fun stuff that you might be using at, at work to, to you know to scale out your systems. Um, Open Source Career Day is is a group of folks that came together, and they really wanted to help, especially in light of the recent layoffs and other activities happening in our industry. Uh, wanted to help folks get you know find jobs using open source and Linux, and so they're. They're doing things like resume reviews and mock interviews and just coaching on how to how to find jobs within uh, using your open source skill set or if you're looking to build an open source skill set. So, um, you know, really, we have a I think there's a lot of conferences out there that, um, as you mentioned, are either real, really big in corporate and, you know, target specifically only focus on selling you things or on the other end of the spectrum, which is, you know, just super community driven, which is a lot of fun, but doesn't you know, doesn't offer that same balance. We, we try to be right in the middle. Um, and so as part of that, that means that we're also looking to offer, um, you know, content and training and activities that reach all levels. So even if you've never used Linux before, we've got a class that'll run for you all day, you know, all day, uh, a full day class that you can come and join where you'll go from having never installed Linux on a machine to um, hopefully being, uh, you know, I won't say, I won't say you're as, you'll be as good of an expert as Noah at it, but you'll be, you'll be pretty, <laughs> you'll be able to go home and get, and, and, and get, get things done and, 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 you know, start to start, start to, you know, dip your toes into that water. So um, on the other end, we've got, you know, classes on how to, you know, for some of the, there's some folks from the Facebook, or I guess now they're called meta team coming out and talking about how they do, um, you know, uh, low level deep, you know, Linux, uh, troubleshooting, uh, uh, with regards to, you know, memory and, and, and resource usage and things like that. And so like wherever you are on that spectrum, uh, of, of expertise, we, we're trying to make sure that there's content there for you. And we, we work very closely with our sponsors to make sure that it's done at a very, a very low price point. Um, some of the other conferences out there might charge you thousands of dollars to attend. That's not us. We're, you know, uh, our, our tickets are $85. And if you type in the code Noah, you'll get 50% off. And so what's that? Uh, 4250. Uh, and wow. so 4250 for four days of training, uh, parties, all kinds of other fun stuff throughout the week is we, we, we think is a fairly good deal. And we, we hope your, your listeners will think so too and come join us. Absolutely. So, you know, you talk about getting people involved from all levels. What if I'm a third grader or a second grader? What's at scale for me? Ah, good, good point. We have, um, we, one of the things that we've started doing about, about 10 years ago was running a kid's track at scale. Um, and that's, that's coming back this year as well. And what, what we have there happening is students from, you know, from, uh, I don't know about third grade, but we do, we, we do have from, from, from a, a wide range of ages, uh, coming out and speaking about what they're doing with, with Linux, with open source, with, with technology in general. Um, and that's for, we, we thought that was important for, for two reasons. One is it's a, it's a good opportunity for, for kids to get a leg up and start their open source careers to start sharing the work that they're doing uh, and to get more involved in the open source community. It's really important that the next generation of technologists care about, um, you know, free software and open culture and open source in the same way that, that we have over the last, uh, you know, couple of decades. Um, and so it's an opportunity for them to get involved there. And we've seen speakers that started at scale speaking at, I don't know, 10, 12, you know, years old, uh, these days, they're now in college or uh, off in their careers building, you know, work, working at work, working at uh, on software that we all use every day. And so it's been it's been inspiring to see that. Um, on the other end, as an attendee, you get to see, you know, you get to see peers of your own age, folks that are, you know, kids that are, um, you know, your, your, at your age, at your experience level, doing amazing things with open source. And that hopefully gets you excited as well. Um, so this this year, we've added in addition to those presentations by kids, we've also added um a full day of hands-on activities for kids as well, where they'll get to, 
um, you know, play with, play with, get, get started with programming, uh, get started with Linux, um, uh, 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 get started with, you know, 3D modeling, all kinds of things like that, that lets them get, you know, sort of what's their appetite and gets them excited about Linux, open source and technology in general. So we invite all the local schools out, but I, you know, I know lots of folks that are, that are listening, want to come to an open source conference, want to come learn about Linux, but also have a kid and they're not sure what to do with a kid that weekend. Um, bring them along. They'll have a great time. So the event is the Southern California Linux Expo. It is going to take place March 9th through the 12th. I will be there. I, you will run into me and we'll likely do some sort of a meetup. It's in Pasadena, California. This is the 20th annual get together of scale. It is an absolute blast. You definitely don't want to miss the, you definitely don't want to miss the event. Elon, thanks for taking the time for, to join us. I really appreciate it. And I'll see you in a couple of weeks. That sounds good. Thanks, Noah. And don't forget, listeners, if you use that code Noah, you'll uh, you'll get that fifty percent off off registration. So, looking forward to seeing you. And thanks for having me, Noah. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to be here. We'll we'll get that code for. Uh, I guess the code's pretty easy, Noah. My name, but we'll get it in the show notes. You find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. And a huge thanks to Elon, the entire team at Scale for putting this together. Again, eight fifty five four fifty Noah. That's one eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Let's get into some feedback. Our first email comes in today from actually the questions bot and tiny asks, what is your recommendation for a good office chair? My wife and I are looking to replace our off brand gaming chairs to reduce our back problems and not to break the bank. So Steve, you not that long ago went through purchasing an office chair. What process did you follow and what did you wind up with? So I started looking at my wife helped a lot. She was very interested in helping for some reason i don't know chairs excite her maybe she likes chairs uh, it's possible she does like looking at various chairs uh it helps to accent the house or something i'm told but uh so she helped out a lot but essentially we filtered by reviews that were talking about people that had had a specific type of size so i'm a tall guy i'm told uh so i'm 100 and 87 centimeters that's like six three for for the americans out there so i'm i'm not your typical like five foot ten person uh and so there's a certain chair that that does not work for me because the the seat is too small or or whatever so we started filtering by that and started looking up reviews for various types of chairs um and we also started to look into similar style chairs. So the theory was that, okay, we found a review on, I don't know, Amazon for this style of chair, but then you can find that that's maybe a knockoff and you, you'd you find which chair might have been the actual inspiration for said knockoff. Um, and we started to walk down that kind of path. And that worked pretty well f- in terms of getting a chair that, that the back part, like the actual back support worked well for me. What we didn't take into account was how do you, when you're shopping online, how do you get a feel for the seat of the chair? Mm. So I I had never sat in one of these chairs that actually has the, uh, they're called wings. I don't know why they call them wings, but essentially it's where the edges of the chair come up in some sort of V shape. Uh, and so I hadn't even considered what it would be like to sit in them. So we bought this chair and of course it's one of those things that that you you buy, you wait and then you assemble yourself and it was during covid and that made things worse and we assemble it and I sit in it and it was kind of uncomfortable in the thighs but I thought it was just because normally I stand. I have a standing desk and I stand 95% of the time. So I thought maybe I'm just un- unused to sitting in the chair and what I found was that even forcing myself to sit in the chair. Yeah, it's really uncomfortable because uh, I'm not I'm not a wide individual, but because of, you know, being tall, I don't fit very well. So essentially, I either have to cross my legs and interlock them so that my thighs are not touching the the parts of the chair that come up, or if I sit in a comfortable way, my thighs are are constrained by this and so mm. it didn't end up working out i don't sit in the chair very much it's a it's a nice 400 hundred dollar accent chair okay brand model uh this is a clutch and i forget what the model is the build quality is decent the casters are good like i have no real complaint about the chair other than that like if 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 they didn't try to i don't i don't know if the intent is to like hug your hug your thighs i'm not exactly sure why 
the chairs decide that they're going to do this. If it didn't have this, the chair would be pretty close to perfect for me. So I've got a couple of recommendations. So I spend all the live long day inside of a chair. So I have thoughts on chairs. Let's we'll leave it at that. The chair that sits in my office that I have used day in and day out for almost seven years is a steel case chair. And I'll have the exact model linked in uh, in in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com. But it's the steel ca- steel chair, steel case chair stealth. And I love it. Every When you get into higher-end chairs, what you find, you're paying for a couple of things. First of all, you're paying for them to last forever. So I expect that chair to last me 20 years and never break down. You're paying for the ability to swap parts. So when the seat wears out or when the padding wears out or the backrest wears out, you don't have to throw the whole chair away. You just order another one of those replacement parts and put it in, and you can attach it yourself. Um, they typically carry their line for longer periods of time than some of the other manufacturers. And so when you need to, you know, even 10 years later, you go to find a part or you go to do something, you're able to do that. And it's a really great chair. The problem is like, uh, any expensive or like any uh, very high quality thing, they're, they're kind of expensive. Um, the other other chairs that you might consider if your budget allows is something like the Herman Miller Aaron or the Herman Miller Embody. Both of these chairs, they are expensive chairs, but everybody that owns one will tell you they are worth every dime. And so particularly, and you don't specify, if you are not the one that is paying for it, if the company is paying for it or they're willing to reimburse you, um, that that might be a direction to go. Now, you specify in your question, you say not break the bank. So I do have some budget option f- uh, available for you as well. There is a very popular chair from Ikea called the Marcus. And the Marcus chair basically rips off the Herman Miller, uh, the Herman Miller style chair. But instead of selling it to you for a thousand dollars, they sell it to you for three hundred dollars. And so it does a fantastic job um, and has a lot of the same adjustment points that you would get with the higher end chair, but at a much, much, much lower price point. Things that you're trading off. Um, obviously, you're not going to get all of the exact same adjustments. They also aren't going to do the same sort of ergonomic studies to get you to sit in all the posture, right things and all of that. Um, and it's probably going to be made with slightly less expensive parts, but still a really good chair. And if I were spending my money, I would absolutely buy the Marcus over, you know, your Office Max, Office Depot, Best Buy, that kind of thing. If you just walk into a store and, and roll one out. Now, that's an absolute legitimate way to go. Like you can go and sit down. You can get a really good idea of what one of those chairs feels like. And, and there's there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but personally, if I was once you start spending anything over like two, three hundred dollars, I would go for for. For something like this. And again, if you can get your company to reimburse you um, and you're looking for something that you want to invest in one time and have it for the rest of your life, so to speak, or the foreseeable future, then I would go with something like a steel case or a Herman Miller. Buy it once, be done with it. Oatwalker in the chat room asks the question about, can you explain why the matrix message decryption bug happens in a way that non-techies can understand it? When I try to explain it to somebody, I quickly realize I don't really understand it. Yeah, absolutely. So, it's using something called the ratchet protocol. And the idea there is that the key changes with every message. And so I have linked for you in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com a video that will dig in and explain it deeply for you. But the short version for the non-techie is the way that I would relate it is if you've ever used a garage door opener. It used to be you had the 10 little dip switches and you would flip the little dip switches into a specific order. And as long as the dip switches matched what was on the garage door opener head then the remote would open up the garage door. But what people found is if you drove up and down the street and pushed that button, sure enough, somebody else had flipped those dip switches in the exact same order that you flipped your dip switches. And when your dip switches match their dip switches, your remote opened their garage door. And that was not ideal. So they went to a new system in where you could learn a code. And that was the first iteration. And it was better because that meant that now uh, you couldn't just drive by and, 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 and that would happen. But still, every once in a while, you would accidentally open up somebody else's garage door. Or if somebody had figured out what, the, what yours was programmed to, they could duplicate it. So they went to something called a rolling code. And the idea of the rolling code is every time you push the button, it, it rolls the code. And so it's a new one every single time. And so unless you paired the remote with... With the head trans, you know, the head receiver, it didn't have, they weren't on the same page as it were with the rolling code. Another way you might look at that is if you've ever had one of those little two, the little RSA token keys where you push the button and it generates a number. And it's generating that number dynamically. It's rolling that code every time. So even if you get a hold of the 
of the little dongle thing and you get the code, it doesn't really do you any good. Now, why is that beneficial for sending messages or, or why do they do it that way? Seems like a real pain, right? So the idea there is if you have a device, let's say you have a phone and you had you were going back and forth and exchanging encrypted messages back and forth with your with whoever. Now you go to a new device and you start a brand new chat with somebody and it has some really sensitive stuff in it and you're talking to maybe your wife or maybe somebody in your family and you've ex- exchanged some very sensitive information the first device that you have gets compromised the police take it an attacker takes it somebody steals it whatever and they go ah i've got so and so's messages now i can get to all of his messages well actually you can't they can get all of the messages for the keys that are stored on that device but because Every message is sent with a different encryption key. The new chat that you started on a different device that never those keys never existed on that first device. And so your chats remain secure. So it's 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 a forward way of thinking when it comes to um, when it comes to security. They use what they call. OLM, which handles sending the keys between the devices on the same account. And then they use something called Meg OLM, which is what allows you to do uh, have those messages available on every device. And so that's different for every message. And oftentimes those two things will get confused. So the video will do a much better job at digging into it much deeper um, than I'm doing. But the, 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 uh, is you asked, how do you explain it to a layperson? I would relate it to the garage door opener. That's probably the simplest way. Our first email this week comes in from Jeremy. Jeremy writes in and says, Hey, no one, Steve. I have a soft skills question for you. So I've been working in the IT industry for a number of years, and I feel like I'm still tuning my soft skills. I work hard, but occasionally I get tripped up by the geek ego mind taking over and coming across as, of course, rather than friendly. For me, I feel that I'm the type of person who really has to step back from geek mode sometimes and start with good morning. It's like it's nothing like we used to see from Linus, but I'm wondering about your opinion on if computers and online conversations by their nature are many times inadequate to maintain healthy tone unless there is a strong personal relationship first. So, Steve, uh, this is something that you, I mean, it might be a bit of an over-exaggeration to say you specialize in, but it's certainly something that you've spent a ton of time researching and have a lot of really well-informed opinions on. What would you say to Jeremy? So, this if we start and work backwards talking about the online communication, it is definitely very difficult to imply tone or intent through text. Mm. And that can be filtered by your mood, the meeting you just got out of the sunshine in your office. It could be, it literally is impacted by anything around you. And so you're absolutely right. It's very dangerous to have, sarcastic comments or anything like that that might be perfectly fine in an interpersonal relationship go out over the internet if they don't understand and i'd point out i'm sure we've all done it with significant others even if you know the person real well they can go flat or even go real negative real quick uh for something that you didn't intend to be that way because as humans when we communicate we we take in tone we take in body language you know, we take in past history, all of these sorts of things are computed almost instantaneously when we're receiving a message. So uh, it doesn't matter how good of a communicator you are, if the person receiving the message is in a bad state, receiving the message is probably 80% of communication. So I mean, I just kind of came up with that number, but it is it is quite high, the act of the receiving the communication is very important. So, in terms of... Oh, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. I was just going to work backwards. So that kind of answered the question about the um, online healthy tone kind of stuff. But he was also talking about uh, geek ego, the geek ego mind, and coming across as coarse rather than friendly and so on. Some of that is is just built into personality. And that's just something that you can soften that, but you'll never be able to scrub that away if that's truly part of your personality. Now, if it's learned... Like, for example, you grew up in an area where you were super adversarial because that's the way people around you communicated as a part, as opposed to it being a part of your personality, then you can unlearn it. If it's part of your personality, you can help to soften it. But personalities are more or less set outside of some sort of traumatic event. Like trauma can completely shift a personality. And 
you can actively choose to try and soften parts of your personality, but they're still going to be there. It's going to be an active, always there conscious thing for you to do. And so um, what I have learned to do in this regard is help people understand how you communicate. So you may think that you're coming across as coarse or blunt or whatever, and maybe you are, but helping people understand how you communicate is a big thing. Because remember, how the thing is received is more important than how it's actually said in the first place. That's just how it is. And so I've actually taken to being direct with people and saying, you know, for me personally, I'm, I'm not a person that some people say pull the punches. I would say I just don't I simply don't have anything to read between the lines. If I don't like you, you'll know that I don't like you. You know, there's there's no there, there's there's no you don't hiding exactly subtext. pull the punches. Yeah, there's there's no subtext there, and when people start to realize that, they're less likely. It doesn't go away, but they're a lot less likely to infer bad things from you because they've learned that your communication style is such, as opposed to there are other people. Uh, I won't name anybody on this call uh, who like to be people pleasers and they're less likely. You have to do a lot more reading into what they're saying in order to get the full effect of, of the message they're communicating. So a couple of things that I think I would I would point you in. So the, the first thing I think that really helps if you can and maybe your business allows for this and maybe it doesn't get everybody in the same room at the same time. So one of the things that, you know, for years and years and years and years and years, we did, uh, I you know, we had a team here in Grand Forks and we did all of all of that. And what ended up happening was as our team grew and we started in, and we started to leverage talent from all around the country and all around the world, it became very difficult to have those same that's build those same sort of relationships. And so we did a couple of things. The first thing we did is we do sprints twice a year and we bring everybody from our team into into Grand Forks. We put them up at a hotel and for for three days or four days, we just we hack on stuff and we work on things and we get to know each other and we hang out and we build relationships because at the end of the day and you're going to notice a pattern here no matter what your business model is no matter what you're trying to accomplish it really all comes down to human relationships that's really what you're trying to do and so when you ask about soft skills the reason you're asking that is because you're very much in tune to this idea that it's difficult to build human relationships over the internet it can be difficult some things you can do that have really helped us there is a there is a personality type uh, test. And for the most part, I don't like personality type tests because I feel like anytime you start to apply labels, you remove nuance. And then people go, oh, I understand this, that, and it just it doesn't work out. But there is one that I found to be more effective than others, and it's the Enneagram. And I'll have a link for you in the in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com. But the Enneagram is put out by the Enneagram Institute, and they basically have uh, different types of 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 nine different types of of personality and so understanding what that understanding what that is might give you a little bit of meat into what steve was talking about when he's saying understanding how you communicate and understanding how other people communicate because if you understand how pe- what people are trying to say or what people are saying it will help you interpret that information and internalize it and be able to use it the other thing i would recommend is checking out a book called the future is analog it's by a gentleman by the name of david Sachs, and in in the book he points out the onset of the pandemic and it instantly gave us this digital universe that everybody like a lot of people to include myself were really excited to get into because it was very exciting to be able to say hey I've said for 10 years I can do my job from anywhere now I actually get to do my job from anywhere and you have to let me do it because it's become socially acceptable and we saw that and there was absolute good things that came out of that. A hundred percent there was. And companies, I watched companies that swore up and down, right, left, and center. We can't do remote work. No, that just doesn't work here. We have to have everybody. And then all of a sudden, hey, by Friday, we need everybody to be remote. Can you come set us up with a VPN package and get us 65 laptops out to, oh, I thought you couldn't go remote. You know, so we absolutely watched that happen. But you know what else happened? A decline in the human relationships. All of a sudden, people are encamped out in their own little world, and it becomes much more difficult to listen and hear other people. It becomes much more difficult to read other people's body language, and thus it becomes much more difficult to understand other people. And so in in his book, The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World, David Sachs goes through about 
how it didn't take long to realize that this isn't great. Like, it's definitely cool that we have the ability to work remotely. It's definitely awesome that we're able to manage organizations remotely, but it isn't the most ideal way to build human relationships. And so it isn't going to be a perfect world if you're never in the same room with somebody else or you never have interaction other than, you know, a chat room or something like that. And so he explores work, he explores school, he explores religion, and they ask very pointed questions in the book. Like, is our future inevitably digital and can we reject the downsides of digital technology? technology without rejecting the change. Um, so I highly encourage you to pick up that book. I think that will give you a lot of insight and might help shape your journey as you're trying to solve these problems. But I would commend you on immediately recognizing that, hey, soft skills in, in some ways, no, not in some ways, soft skills are absolutely more important than technical skills because you can teach technical skills to somebody doesn't that doesn't have them if you want if you're perceived as a jerk to other people it doesn't matter how technically competent you are you're going to have a hard time working with other people and you're going to have a hard time serving other people yeah i think um whether you like him or not jordan peterson says that one of the the most important things that a parent does is to prepare their child to interact with society mm. and i think that that is 100% true right if it we need to be able to interrupt regardless of what job or thing that you end up doing. And if people don't, I have a big talk about all about how people perceive you. So I won't go on there because I could eat up the rest of the show and then four or five more. Uh, but I did want to say it starts with self-introspection. So a lot of people lose this when they're developing soft skills. They focus on other people. What you really need to do is get in tune with yourself. And that sounds hokey, but you really need to understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. If you want to change something, at least then you have something to change. I don't do it as a, I, I don't recommend it as a, you should change this about yourself, but you need to know why you're doing something and how you're doing it so that you can understand how it's being perceived. You, you really shouldn't be starting with an outward looking, like an outward looking perspective. That old adage of like you point the finger and you've got three of them pointing back at you <laughs> really applies to communication skills, right? Yes. You, you need to understand yourself and, and what you're saying and how you're saying it, why you're saying it. So I'm a big, I'm a big supporter of the really comprehensive personality tests because the 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 really good one like the Myers Briggs or the one that you mentioned they there's a lot of research that goes into them and they're very much like hey this is just a this is just your dominant thing it doesn't mean mm. that this is your whole encompassing totality of self in this reflection here so it's something to think about i had a boss one time give me a really good piece of advice he said um he was he went through a process to where his wife basically told him you spent your 20s and 30s drunk, and there's just no more honest way to say that. And I'm sick of it, so you are going to change, or I'm leaving. And he said in that moment, the most effective way for him to start to analyze himself or start to think about himself was he just went and stood in the bathroom and stood and looked in the mirror and did it for a good long time. And he said the amount of self-reflection, no pun intended, that came out of it. And he said it, it absolutely sounds stupid when you say it out loud. But he's like the amount of self-reflection that comes out when I just stand in the mirror and look and think uh, was tremendously powerful to him. So you're on the right track, my friend. I would highly encourage you, you know, pick up, continue to explore soft skills. They are absolutely important. They're more important now than they probably have ever been in the past because of the way that our world uh, is moving. And so continue to stay on the forefront of it and continue to share your experiences because we all want to learn. Our second email comes in from Carrie. Carrie writes in and says, I think the discussion around podcasting 2.0 has been really interesting. I enjoy hearing both sides of the argument and taking boosts. That being said, I think a lot of people get instantly turned off from podcasting 2.0 because they don't like crypto, because the word has been tainted by all the bad stuff happening in the crypto scene due to the rich get rich quick and dump and pump dump crypto schemes. Podcasting 2.0 is about a lot more than just using the value for value model to fund a creator. There's a lot of really cool technology in podcasting 2.0 that is valuable even if a podcaster does not plan to take boosts. I believe you can still use many of these features without actually taking boosts. And I think the podcasting 2.0 is where we all hope podcasting is 
headed instead of becoming a centralized behind a walled garden like Spotify and YouTube. I really hope that the Great Air podcasting community will embrace podcasting 2.0 since it seems like it's the only alternative for the future of podcasts. Also, podcasting 2.0 is being worked on in the open and in collaborative in in a collaborative way so i think it speaks to the value of those who love open source i think it's unfortunate that people seem to focus on the boosts and crypto when talking about podcasting 2.0 since there's so much more to it than that i hope that you and those working on the ask noah show podcast don't write off podcasting 2.0 without taking a deeper look and seeing what you could leverage to serve your audience members even better than you already do i love the show thanks for all you do carrie so First of all, I, I can't tell you how appreciative I am that the community has kind of stepped up and said, hey, we're willing to engage in this discussion because there's, you're absolutely right. And I, you've never heard me say or Steve say there isn't value in, you know, in podcasting 2.0. I completely agree with that. And I'll be honest with you. There are absolutely features that the more I learn about it, the more I look at it and say, yes, absolutely. That solves problems. Like I said, every day I leave this, I leave, I walk out of the studio tonight. I will walk out of the studio at 7:30 or so, and I will get down to my car and I will pull my smartphone out of my pocket and I will try to download ask Noah show, which has absolutely been published at that point, And I will not be able to, because it won't be available. So there, so I've absolutely come across problems that would be solved with podcasting 2.0 it's i'm but change is a process so it it does it it absolutely takes time and it absolutely takes effort but i i agree it's it's good for people to get in it for the long haul our i guess i'd ask steve any thoughts to carrie's email i liked how well thought out this email was um even even expressing a dissenting opinion i thought this was very well structured and i think that at least for me, the impetus is if I'm going to invest time in trying to do something, there needs to be a, a really compelling reason to do so. And maybe the, you know, your instant publishing might be that reason, but it's one of those things. It's not if it ain't broke, don't fix it, but put it on the pile and where does this rank? Well, so how about this, right? You want to support and be involved with independent content creators. That is the only viable open source way to really create and and publish content at a mass scale without being beholden to some corporation. Yeah, I guess I meant just in our specific case. That's the only view of the world that I really have. Mm. You know, I I do this with you. I've been doing it the last couple of years on air and uh that is the only viewpoint I have into the world on this. Okay. Our third email, kind of related, comes in from Charlie. Charlie writes in and says, G'day, everyone. In 2022, I created a podcast and I've asked my viewers to donate money to the video hosting site that actually supports free speech instead of directly funding myself as a content creator. I use my own funds to produce content without sponsorship, external funding, or viewership donations. What I found... A lot of content creators expect payments from viewers because they treat it as a nine to five job. They get crappy. Uh, then they get crappy when viewers choose not to donate for a product that's always been offered for free of cost and a free download. I'm not impressed with all of this podcasting 2.0 and hosting. What I like RSS plus extending RSS or standard or creating RSS 2.0. I like linking show notes. I like linking pictures, guests, and hosts, and I like direct URLs for the podcast files. What I don't like, I don't like the blockchain. I don't like the idea of cryptocurrency. I don't like the idea of the cloud, and I definitely don't like the idea of one central server which maintains a huge database list. Why doesn't the standard allow for content creators to opt out of payments and set up a method that the viewer and listener can choose to pay the company that hosts the podcast content creator, ISP, VPS, VPN, with some sort of referral code system? This way, the content creator never has to use crypto, blockchain, credit card, or an account with a name, but the payment indirectly helps them out. Myself, I currently use DPaste for show notes and Transfer SH for audio copy of my podcast, and Josh Who TV, the video site for the video edition, which also offers a, a download link for the MP4. I found that decentralization works for me. It doesn't tie me to a single provider for my show notes and content. I'll be looking to self-host as a backup in 2023 using object storage or buckets. I've even seen advertised for five bucks a month, 250 gigs and others for five bucks a month for one terabyte. Both ByVM and Vulture offer some of these cheap object storage methods. Don't be pressured into the latest thing because the current trend or latest shiny thing the cool kids are talking about. 
All the best with podcasting, Linux, Voss, and 2023. So thanks for writing in. Again, I, I appreciate the varied views on this. It's been really interesting to hear what your experiences are as a listener and what your expectations from people that deliver you content are. And so I'd continue to invite that feedback at you know, live at asknoshow.com. If you have additional thoughts, it's again, I think someday we're absolutely going to make it into the podcasting 2.0 realm. I think there's enough features that are out there. And frankly, if nothing else, I would like the experience of being able to talk about what's available in podcasting 2.0. Um, it just isn't, so, again, like Steve said, we all get the same 24 hours in the day. So it's a matter of, yeah, that's something I'd love to do. Just put that on the stack with a bunch of other things I'd like to do, and we'll see which one gets to first. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of February 19th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. Tails 5.10 has been released and addresses a few security flaws that were discovered in 5.9. KDE has released a 5.27 version of the Plasma desktop as an LTS. The Budgie desktop has released its first minor update to the 10.7 series of the Budgie desktop. The Linux 6.2 kernel has been released with major updates to Intel Arc graphics and initial open source support for NVIDIA RTX 30 series cards. And without much delay, the GNU Linux Libre team has released their Libre version of the 6.2 kernel. And in other kernel news, the kernel team has been discussing the removal of the Itanium code from the mainline kernel. The GCC compiler deprecated IA64 support in the kernel several years ago. And the IA64 kernel build has been broken for a while. In 2021, Linus Torvalds orphaned the IA64 kernel code, and now that that's been two years since that orphaning, the devs are starting to feel that it's time to remove it entirely. The open source DAW Ardor has released its latest version, 7.3. Vault Warden, an unofficial Bitwarden compatible server written in Rust, has switched to an AGPL3 license. In the past, threat actors have been using commercial command and control frameworks, but now they're getting into the open source trend with a new framework called Havoc. Researchers have said the open-source Havoc framework is an advanced post-exploitation command and control framework capable of bypassing the most current and updated versions of Windows 11 Defender due to the implementation of advanced evasion techniques such as indirect syscalls and sleep obfuscation. And a new crowdfunding project named USB Serial has launched and is an open-source hardware USB-C debugging and development tool. And lastly, according to an interview by InfoSecurity Magazine with several U.S. government officials, the federal government is advocating for open-source developers to make the switch to memory-safe languages. However, they emphasize that the federal government is not rushing to make interventions in the open-source space. They say they want to collaborate with international partners and the global open-source community to ensure that policies are enacted in a coordinated and collaborative way. In 2020, Mycroft AI was sued for patent infringement from what it labeled as a patent troll. The company suing Mycroft AI is Voice Tech Corporation, which later dropped its litigation, but not before costing the startup dearly. Well, as it turns out, the open source software maker Mycroft disappointed thousands when it announced on Friday that it will not be sending its Linux-based smart speaker to any more people who back the project on Kickstarter and Indiegogo. Remaining inventory of the privacy-focused Amazon Echo alternative will go to those who buy the Mark II from their website at around $500. So they sent out an email, which is very long, so I've taken just parts of it out, but uh, it, it reads in part... I have some unfortunate news to share, and there's no easy way to say it, so here it is. We'll not be able to fulfill any of the remaining Mark II rewards. After searching in vain for a new hardware partner that could provide a similar product at a reasonable price point, it became clear that it didn't exist. And there were wildly expensive options, but there were wildly underwhelming options. And there were new startups that could not prove their hardware, so the team started building a new Mark II from off-the-shelf components. The version of the Mark II proved what we were able to do as possible. However, using a range of off-the-shelf components, manually wiring it together is time-consuming and expensive, and it's also fragile. Thankfully, this was around the time when I came on board, and hardware is something I'm very familiar with, so we took what was working and integrated everything into a single custom board known as the SJ201. Finally, we had a robust hardware that was ready for mass production. When we first spec the thing out, it came in at $99, but due to supply chain disruptions and unfolded costs rose over 90% at the time that we imported 
and manufacturing fees out the door. The cost rose to $300, not to include the amortization of $100,000 cost of the injection molds. But they still wanted to honor those pledges. The best plan we could think to devise was to fulfill the remaining campaign rewards was to use the slim margins we have on the sales for new devices to cover the increased costs of hardware production. So what went wrong? The single most expensive item that I could not have predicted was litigation against the non-practicing patent entity that has never stopped trying to destroy us. If we had that million dollars, we'd be in a very different state right now. So we will be shipping all orders that are made through the Mycroft website because those sales directly cover the cost of producing and shipping the products. However, we do not have the funds to to continue fulfilling rewards from this crowdfunding campaign or even to continue meaningful operations. Michael Lewis. So a couple of things here I think that's important to point out. So the first thing is anytime you're using Kickstarter, it's not a guarantee, right? It's not a pre-order. So they, you know, if they do their due diligence and attempt to fulfill on their promise and they're unable to do so, they're not liable. You are funding something that is unproven and consequently you should only back things you really believe in and believe that people can bring into existence. In this case, I'm not sure what Mycroft could have done differently to avoid litigation. Now, Steve, I know you have, you know, an ongoing relationship with Mycroft. Um, what are your thoughts? The, the litigation was particularly difficult for them. Um, Without going into too much specifics, the, the gentleman who was suing them was actually a practicing lawyer, so it didn't cost him any money at all to just continually pile on the paperwork. And uh, let's just say that the, there were some bad feelings that that developed between Mycroft, well, particularly on the gentleman's end who was suing. He believed that he should have won one of the rounds of, of lawsuit. He lost, for the record, he lost every time. Uh, but that just seemed to egg him on more and more. And he just basically buried them under litigation. So that that's just really unfortunate. Essentially, a guy took out a personal grievance in my estimation. This is all in my estimation. A guy took out a personal grievance and essentially sunk this project by burying them in legal costs, even though he lost every single time. So I looked so, up I looked up what he what his patent was. So here is his patent. Are you ready for this? Using voice commands from a mobile device to remotely access and control a computer. That yeah. was his patent in 2017. That's what he sued him over. Yeah, you better you better watch out. Uh, what is the um what is the KDE project that, <laughs> that has a thing for the the phone? Forget it's KDE. How about Microsoft? How about Apple? How about Amazon? How about Google? All those companies are doing that. Why isn't he suing them if this is his patent? Well, I don't know that that those guys were specifically controlling a computer, whereas the KDE project has that the thing that you can install on on your phone. Is it what? It, I'm drawing Connect. a blank here. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which would be a more direct comparison. The other ones are just someone has figured out how to make that work more or less. Like mm. if you watch any of the videos, I mean, we're getting off topic a little bit, but if you watch any of the videos to the people showing how to do it, mm-hmm. there's a bit, there's a bunch of hoops to get like an Alexa or a Microsoft assistant or whatever to, to do stuff with the computer. Gotcha. So, so the litigation was rough. Did, I mean, watching that kind of unfold, what were your impressions? It was really tough for the for the team. They really believe in what they're doing. I know that um, unofficially that a bunch of the people working on the project have kind of pledged to keep the the servers and stuff going for as long as they can. So they'll they will uh, they're using their own time and and some of them are using their own resources because they believe that much in Mycroft's mission that the servers are going to stay on for as long as possible. They also have uh, recently, very recently, enabled Mycroft to do a lot of things offline. So even if the service goes offline, uh, there w- there's been a ton of work for local control for Mycroft, either running your own server or like your own SDT server or anything like that. So there have been ongoing stuff and they, I don't want to say they polished it, but but they have expanded that capability in late 2022. And so... They they really 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 don't want this to be a brick. Um, so that I feel bad for them. I know some of them personally, and it's 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 a tough time. They lost their job, but on top of that, they're watching something that they passionately believe in kind of evaporate around them. That's really too bad. So our our you know 
thoughts are with the MyCraft team, and it's it's disappointing to see what happens, and it's disappointing to see that that's where patent trolls are at. And um, I not not a whole lot more to say other than that's that's really disappointing. Couple of things we're not going to spend a ton of time on it, but Linux kernel six point two is out, and so after more than two months in the work, Linux kernel six point two is set to introduce load balancing uh, for the IPv6 stack, as well as support for asynchronous exit notifications. It also came with a new tool called the runtime verification that can control the operation of runtime verification subsystem in a new framework. And this, I think, is particularly cool. They have now mainlined the support for the M1. So if you have one of the newer Macs, uh, it will the, the drivers for which will now be based in the mainline Linux kernel, which I think is pretty cool. Additionally, they have support for Intel Arc, which is support for Intel's discrete uh, GPU. That's offered in mainline, as well as uh, the first iteration of the drivers for the RTX 30 series. So this is, if you are following along, they have replaced the Novu driver with a complete open source stack. And so this is kind of the first iteration as coming through mainline kernel. It's not quite to the performance. Actually, it's not point blank, full stop, not where the performance of the proprietary driver is yet, but we're working there. Also, they've added support for 800 gigabits a second networking, as well as Wi-Fi 7 support. And so this is key uh, for the 6.2 kernel with the latest networking features and latest wireless networking features. Uh, Something else, I don't again, don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but just Section 230 is, uh, it, it essentially says that the people who run websites are not responsible for the content in which... Uh, in which is posted on their website. And so this is making its way through the Supreme Court. This is is monumental for uh, people who care about online content and, and that sort of thing. So if you're not following along, I highly encourage you to watch this case that's going through uh, the Supreme Court. Essentially, they're, they're trying to hold Google accountable for uh, terroristic content that was hosted on YouTube. And so... The problem here is, right, if if they do away with Section 230 or they put the government in charge of regulating content, it could mean all sorts of bad things for people who create content and certainly people like us who value the idea of an open ecosystem where we can say anything and keep it decentralized and keep it between us and the other person we're communicating with. Um, So we'll continue to watch that, but huge, huge ramifications depending on how that works out. Wanted to give you uh, some updates on what's coming up on the program. So March 7th, Michael Dominic, small business owner, software developer, an open source enthusiast, and a gamer will join the Ask Noah show. He's going to be with us March 7th. So we invite you to send your questions in. Now you can message Merlin the question bots, questions, linuxdelta.com, and you can ask him your questions, and Marlon will park them and have them available for us for the interview. Or you can send questions in to live at asknoahshow.com. You can do that anytime between now and March 7th, or show up and participate in the chat room. Call in at 855-450-NOAH, and Michael will would be love to answer your questions about small business, about software development, about open source, or about gaming. I hear he's launching or has launched a new podcast about gaming, so we'll get Michael's take on that, and he'll be able to take a lot of those questions. So super excited to have Michael Dominic joining us. The music in our ears means we're out of time. I thank you for joining us. We record the show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can find all of the articles, all of the resources that we use to make the show available for you at podcast.asknoahshow.com. If you want to stay up to date with the latest, follow us on Twitter. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. The show at Ask Noah Show. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week. <laughs>